Welcome. This is My Truth is a platform for honest, open conversations. The stories I share or that others share are often not spoken about or discussed, but once told, I believe they have the ability to shine a light on another perspective or a much needed conversation. These stories may make us laugh, some may make us cry, but together we will learn from one another and begin to heal. Because walls need to be torn down, masks need to come off, stories need to be heard in order for our truths to be told. This is my truth. Will you tell me yours? Hi, Courtney. I'm so very excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Jesse. I'm so excited to be here too. And I'm really grateful for you and this platform that you've created. And I've been waiting to share my story and I can't think of a better way to be able to do that. So happy to be here. Thank you. I am honored. And this platform wouldn't exist without people like you leaning into your vulnerability and sharing your truth. So it's, it's all um, about you. So thank you. I like to kick us off with the, what seemingly seems like a simple question, but you know, the more you dig into it, it's, it's really not, but what is the truth that you would like to share today? So the truth that I'd like to share today is the truth of my life. It's the truth of my past, of who I am, where I'm going, and the message that I'm spreading. Um, And I feel like I spent a lot of time running away from my past and worrying about my future that I was never able to be present in my life. And the truth that I've learned along my journey has finally brought me to a place where I can. And I just want to share that and spread that so that other people can experience it too. I have goosebumps. Um, I think so many people can relate to what you just said. I know I for sure can. And so I'm, I'm really excited. Tell us a little bit more about your journey. Sure. So I'm going to nerd out a little bit here for just a minute because (laughs) I am all about like framework and theory. So to kind of frame the conversation, I want to talk a little bit about the chaos theory, if that's okay. I would love that. Sure. So chaos theory is really this interdisciplinary approach to understanding the world. And it explains all different kinds of phenomena. I mean, we use this from... Uh, computer science to engineering to explain the weather. And in my humble opinion, I think it can also be used to explain human behavior and um, the human experience. And really what the chaos theory teaches us is that there's no such thing as random, that everything kind of has this underlying cause. And there's always a mechanism that even though it looks chaotic or it looks random, it never really is. And it also teaches us that certain systems are really, really sensitive to initial conditions. So if you think about this in an analogy of like a boat, right? If you hop on a boat from California and you are, you know, 10 degrees off at the beginning, you could end up in an entirely different country. So sometimes those very early experiences or the things that happen to us early in our lives can influence the outcomes 
whenever, um, you know, we're not in tune with ourselves and we're not in tune with our lives to be able to kind of shift out of chaos, right? That's, that's the whole point of the chaos theory. Life kind of exists like that into things like resiliency and, um, you know, becoming more self-aware and being able to understand how our past influences us and how it um, impacts the way that we show up in the world. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I was a sociology minor. And so this is like, I'm like totally geeking out with you right now. Um, I, I love, I love that. And I also love the analogy that you made. I think that it makes so much sense. And now I'm like thinking about my own life and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can apply this to so many things. So thank you. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that once you kind of look at it, it makes intuitive sense. Mm -hmm. So entropy is chaos. Entropy is literally basically our currency and the universe. It's the default state in which we exist. So, you know, I very much prescribe to the systems perspective. Um, that's what I was trained in, in my master's program and specifically this organic intelligence model that teaches us that systems can switch between states and chaos is the default, but not the only state in which we can exist. So there's also this other state, it's called resiliency, which is when a system becomes aware of itself, it's able to kind of manipulate things and, um, you know, take the chaos and kind of make it um, some amount of order. Um, and then there's also the third state, which is resiliency, which is auto-organizing. So this is a system that is able to switch between, you know, times when it needs to be in survival mode, but also can be, you know, resilient and be able to learn and grow and live in abundance. And it doesn't have to be stuck in survival mode because sometimes we need survival mode, Mm -hmm. but when you live in it chronically, that's where it causes problems. Oh my gosh. I love this so much. I I'm thinking not only how it applies to my own life, but you know, when you, when you scroll through social media, right. Which let's be very clear that most people are only showing sort of like the best of the best within their life. Mm -hmm. But so many of us, and, and that is honestly why I have issues with social media, because I think that so many people when they're living in survival state, right, they are looking at outward sources and saying like, how is, how is everyone else managed to, to move beyond this? How are they living in either resiliency or what was the third state? Something with a P? Yeah, it's called prosiliency. Prosiliency. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I love that because one, it gives language and to your point, a framework around, um, the state of which we can be living in. And I also like that you call out that, you know, it's okay to, to, to move across, across all those things. Like I think about myself the last two weeks, I was probably a bit in survival mode a little bit, but mm-hmm. have been able to, to get myself out. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what has that looked like for you? How has that journey for you been as you've navigated the different states? Yeah. So I'm going to start from the beginning, which is my birth, really. Um, You know, I was born into survival mode. Um, I was born uh, via emergency C-section, cord wrapped around my neck three times. I was born blue. Um, And I had an APGAR score of two, which you don't know 
even if you don't know anything about APGAR and you don't know anything about what that would mean, I think a score of two is pretty indicative of that's not a good score. You don't want a two on anything. Um, So they weren't even entirely sure that I was going to be able to survive. Um, And, you know, it played out throughout my life that survival has kind of always been this theme for me where I, I came into the world fighting for my life and it carried with me for a long time. Um, I was born to younger parents. You know, my parents, my mom was 19. She was a sophomore in college when she found out she was pregnant with me. Um, my dad was in the Navy. Um, he was a little bit younger than she was. And so, um, you know, their relationship was young and evolving still when I came into the world. And, um, you know, unfortunately, during one of their separations, um, there was a babysitter who physically abused me. And I was about three or four years old at the time. And for me, um, that also really impacted the way that I perceived the world. And it kind of reinforced that survival um, within me. And, um, you know, for the longest time, I couldn't even say the person's name out loud because it would just send me into a spiral. as a young child, I was always anxious. I was always very concerned about um, my safety. And I, I always, you know, was very, um, I always kept to myself. I had trouble making connections with people, having real friends, um, forming relationships. Um, my only real friends were my cousins, and that was great and it was fine. But I just, you know, struggled to fit in with my classmates. I never, um, really got along with people from my community. They just were, nobody understood me. I mean, the things that happened to me when I was so young, not everybody goes through that kind of trauma. Um, and it was at that point when I was about five years old, my parents were back together. You know, we were really, um, working on trying to reestablish ourselves as a family. And that's when my mom and dad Um, turned to religion and I became part of a fundamentalist group at that point which are you familiar with fundamentalism at all or I am but for those in the audience that might not be um, why don't you explain it sure so fundamentalism it can come from all different types of like religious um, sectors but basically it's a very strict adherence to biblical principles and um, it basically states that the Bible is a literal interpretation and that there's really not any room for questioning. Um, there, it's very much sort of based on this patriarchal type of system in which uh, men hold power. Um, and I understand that not all, um, not all interpretations of it may be that way throughout the different sectors of religions, but um, you know, within my specific practice, it was, you know, women weren't allowed to preach. Um, we weren't allowed to even yell out and yell amen with the rest of the, the crowd or the audience. You know, we had to wave handkerchiefs. Um, I think I was about like eight or nine years old when I started taking marriage and motherhood classes. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, how bizarre that, you know, it's like, we feel like we have to train the girls how to be mothers and wives, even though we've been mothers and wives since the beginning of time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it definitely 
and I want to be clear in saying that I do view religion more as like a cultural interpretation. So I think that some people can practice fundamentalism and I, I think that it can be a healthy way of practicing it maybe for some people, but for me, it was not. It, it led me to um, develop a lot of anxiety around being perfect and trying to just be the perfect um, daughter, um, sister, um, you know, wanting to make sure that um, I was going to have a boyfriend who would eventually become my husband. I remember when I was like, I think about maybe 10, 11 years old, I was at this big conference and they had us all, um, a lot of the girls anyways, they had us all pledged to be missionaries' wives. Um, and that was like my greatest ambition was to just be somebody's wife. Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm, you know, I, I obviously love my husband and I'm happy and proud to be his wife. But when that's sort of the only option that seems to be available, I mean, that really influences how you look at things, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, from there, um, after some time, I started to kind of develop this little bit of like a rebellious streak. And I was like, it, something just never worked for me under that. Like, I just, I knew that there had to be something more. And after some time, we had a falling out with the church. And um, we left this church, left the private schooling. I'd been privately schooled up until that point. And I entered public schooling just in time for high school. <laughs> <laughs> just in time. Um, in the eighth grade and the transition was just really, really difficult. I mean, sure. you go from one extreme to the other, you know, mm -hmm. um, from complete isolation and protection of the bubble that I lived in, in that fundamentalist group into, well, here is the world and secularism and all of um, these different ways of thinking and being and living that just scared me, you know? Wait, can we pause on this for one second? Because I, I sure. think that just, just that, that sort of like that transition is so extreme. What was, what was that like for you? It was traumatic to be completely honest with you. Yeah. When I was transitioning into the school, I was the new kid in a very small class. I think there were like maybe 70 or 80 of us in this class. And so I was still very um, modest in the way that I was dressing. I was still wearing like skirts down to my knees, shirts up to my collarbone. Um, I was carrying my Bible around with me to classes. I was very devout still in my practices. And people just made fun of me. I mean, I was the oddball. I was the one who never fit the peg, you know? Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people feel like that though at some point, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I know I, I definitely have. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, like eighth grade, I feel like that's the, the age where most people are sort of like figuring out, like starting to like figure out their identity to some, to some extent. And like mm -hmm. kids are not kind. Sadly. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And especially, um, you know, the class that I had become part of, they all had their cliques. They all knew each other yeah. from the moment that they were in school, pretty much. 
And here it was, this new girl who looked different, talked different, walked different, just was so um, different from other people that it, it was difficult for me. But after a few years, I started to kind of pick up on what I needed to do to fit in and, and make friends. Um, and so I was in the 10th grade when I fell in love for the first time. Um, it was with a boy who, he was on the football team, he's well-known, he had a lot of friends, um, and, you know, he was dating, or I'm sorry, his friend was dating one of my girlfriends at the time, and I just kind of jumped on the occasion of, all right, here's my chance to kind of, you know, fit in, find somebody, um, you know, it was my first time falling in love, so I wasn't sure what love was, I wasn't sure what it looked like or what it felt like, um, and, you know, I had always witnessed a lot of tumultuous relationships and had a, a skewed perspective of what love was just based on my experiences. Yeah. And it wasn't really that long into the relationship where it started to turn unhealthy. And there were a lot of red flags. You know, I had a few of my girlfriends who were telling me, Courtney, what are you doing? This doesn't seem right. He seems really jealous. He gets angry really easily. Um, you know, and eventually verbal altercations turned into physical altercations. And I'm not one to hold grudges, though, to be clear, you know, I don't think that this is a bad person. I think that sometimes, unfortunately, you know, we learn these behaviors and that um, we learn that this is what love is. Love is jealous and love is controlling and this is just how it looks. But after a while, I wasn't interested in that anymore. I broke up with him in a really, I mean, a terrible way. I basically um, completely just took off on him. I mean, we were fighting one day, he broke up with me and I went to the party for the first time in my life. I had never gotten drunk. I decided I was gonna have some beers. I met somebody new and boom, I was moved on. And it was really difficult. It was a really, um, of all the ways that I could have ended it, that was probably the wrong way to do it. But sometimes our systems, we adjust in the only way that we know how. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the self-awareness or the capacity to be like, oh, what is the best course of action? Like I was angry. I was vindictive. I was to the end of my rope in the relationship. And so I did what people do when they're hurt, which is hurt other people, you know? 100%, 100%. And just to be clear, this was, you were still in high school when this was all happening? Oh yeah. I was about 15, 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the relationship ended with a protection from abuse order. We took it to court. I mean, it was a really, it, it was a very difficult experience. And sure. I really started to struggle with my mental health. That was my first real bout with anxiety and depression to the point where it had become debilitating for me. And I was trying to find any way to hide from it, which, you know, really ties back with even when I was a child and having to hide from my abuser, you know, I, I had to find a way to escape. And the only way that I saw other people using and I saw other people doing was through 
drinking and partying and staying out all night and living that lifestyle that a lot of people live um, in their adolescence and their early adult years. Far from the only person who found relief in the bottom of a Smirnoff bottle, you know? I, I can speak personally. I have done that. So you are far from the only person. Exactly. Exactly. Because we all do what we know. And at that point, that's all I knew. Um, but it ended up not working, obviously. Um, the depression got so terrible that I ended up having an attempt when I was 17 that landed me in a, in a psychiatric ward for a week. And that was a turning point in me realizing that I had a problem, but I still didn't know what to do with it. So while I was starting to shift into this like resiliency mode where I'm like beginning to become self-aware, I'm starting to see that I have these patterns that aren't really serving me. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the support. I didn't have the community to do any different. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that I never lost along the way was my thirst for knowledge and education. No matter, even if I was skipping class and I was missing school, I was still getting good grades. And I earned my place down at Pitt, Maine, um, the University of Pittsburgh. And I, you know, started kind of living my life down in the city. And I loved the vibe. I loved the people. But it got distracting. I got away from my studies a little bit. And I ended up losing a scholarship after my freshman year. And I had $4,500 that I needed to come up with within six weeks at 18 years old. Wow. I mean, I... I don't know about you, but I didn't have $4,500 no. sitting around when I was 18. <laughs> Def definitely not. And, and I didn't have, I, didn't, I, I grew up in poverty and I didn't really have people that I could turn to to get $4,500, but I did have a girlfriend who told me how I could make it in a matter of a couple weeks if I needed it. And that was when I... Um, transitioned into professional dancing of sorts. Um, it was when I started to um, dance at a local strip club and I started making some really good money really, really quick and didn't know what to do with myself or do with all the money. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lifestyle that comes along with that too. Oh, I'm sure. It's not it's not just, you know, you go to work and you come home or you clock in and you clock out. It's an entire way of living. It's, you know, late nights, drugs, alcohol, it's meaningless sex. It's, it's friendships that are superficial. And it's just for me anyways, in my experience, this very hedonistic way of living. And you just do what feels good and you do it so much that you just kind of desensitize to a certain point. You're like, oh, now I can't feel anything. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. You know? Yeah. It, it's one of those things to where like all I had were, were these, the drugs and the alcohol and, and the sex and like, those are 
really disappointing answers to the question of like life and our existence and why we're here because they're just so transient it works as long as you use it and then and then it's done and you're left with nothing again but i think what you said earlier right like it, it one it's our culture sort of norms that stuff which sounds weird to say but you know, even like, let's just take the fact that there's a global pandemic going on right now and um, kids are going back to school. And I've had a friend text me at the, from our local Trader Joe's where above the wine, it said back to school. Right. So Mm -hmm. like, I, I hear you and I agree with you, but I also think it's worth calling out that as a society, as a culture, we, we turn to, it, it's like acceptable to turn to mm-hmm. maybe not so much drugs um, as, as alcohol, um, but in some cases, yes, drugs, right? And so um, I think that's important to, to just call out because there, there is there's some sort of pressure from society on that, on that aspect too, especially if that's all you saw, you know, growing up. Exactly, exactly. Um, we so badly want this to be about somebody's character and be like, well, they're just a shitty person and that's why they have to use drugs to be happy. Um, but the truth is that it's so much more complex than that. And it's, it's so much more complex. It's easy to think it's just simple. We, as humans, our brains want things to be simple so desperately, but chaos theory guys, it's not how that works. So, you know, I later, um, once I was on my road to recovery and everything, that's when I started learning about applied behavior analysis and learning that all behaviors really serve a function. And so it's more about like finding replacement behaviors. Like I was always seeking avoidance and escape. The, the theme through all of the maladaptive behaviors and all of the, the things that I did that weren't serving me, I needed to escape or avoid. And that started as far back as when I was a toddler. So once I kind of learned that, and that's really when I started to shift into, um, you know, that resiliency model of, okay, so this is more about making sure I can get the thing that my body needs, that it's craving um, in a way that is helpful and that enhances my capacity and like does something for me. Um, it's not with liquor and all that. I mean, it works. Of course it's work. It's going to work. It's more about like, okay, so if I'm using this for escape or avoidance, how do I escape or avoid things without turning to liquor? Can I try yoga? Can I try meditation? Can I try going for a run? Or like, those are my things that I've now found help me escape or avoid. But um, I think it's different for every person. I love that. And I love that you call out that it's, it's different for every person because I think, again, just to, to echo what you're saying, so often we want things to fit into a neat little box, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and that's just, that's like true of parenting and education and, and that's just not the way like life is. Um, no. But it's interesting because I, like, I, I definitely don't know a ton about brain science, but what I understand, right, is, is our, our brain wants, is wired to protect us. And so Mm -hmm. in that, that innate, like, 
fight or flight that we all have, um, figuring out what a, for lack of a better word, like a healthier option to, um, uh, what is the word I'm, I'm looking for, but to, to replace that, that other mm-hmm. action, um, I think is going to be unique, unique to, to diff- to each individual. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it can be a really scary feeling when you start, when your state starts to shift, like when you start to go from chaos to resiliency, like that's a scary feeling. Your system doesn't exactly know what's going to happen. It doesn't realize it, it can't sense to say, this is going to be a transformative change for me rather than this is going to be um, a light, like a shattering change for me or something that's really scary and unpredictable. It is our body's natural desire to be in what's called homeostasis. So to keep things the same, to keep things how we know. So we as humans are going to resist change. But if you look back at that time period I was in in my life, you know, I was surviving using those unhealthy coping mechanisms. My body unconsciously had figured out a way to live despite all I had been through, you know, but it was more about um, switching into that resiliency by getting the right resources and the right supports in my life. So I had, by that point, I had dropped out of school. My family was trying to intervene, but I had completely isolated myself. Um, I had, you know, a group of friends who were just lost souls at that point along with me who didn't, were just sort of, you know, existing and not sure where we were going or what we were doing in this world. And I just didn't have anybody to kind of pull me out of that. But it all changed um, once I moved home and I went back to school and, you know, I, I decided I was going to be celibate and I decided that I was going to focus on learning and just um, growing as an individual. And I shifted into that resiliency place. But my issue was, is I had fallen into that whole hustle, hustle, hustle mentality, which I'm sure you can relate to. Very much so. (laughs) Yeah. Which hustles, I mean, it, it teaches you a lot to go through that phase. You know, I can honestly say that I probably couldn't have gotten through my final semester without a little bit of hustle. I was taking 18 credits. I had just found out that I was pregnant at the beginning of my final semester um, with my son at the time. So I was like five months pregnant, 18 credits, working, um, finishing up at school. And we were, you know, getting into our first home. And it was a time in my life where, um, you know, I, I had to be in that survival mode. I had to push forward. I had to push through. But I started to see the impact of these high chronic levels of stress once I gave birth to my son. Um, I, I wasn't taking care of myself. Like, period, point blank. I was not taking care of my body. I was not moving my body. I developed high blood pressure. Um, you know, they, they wanted to induce me, but I had a failed induction the first time, which I don't know if you realize that failed, like inductions can fail. I didn't know that actually. (laughs) Neither did I. Interesting. Good to know if I have a third kid. (laughs) I didn't realize that they failed, but my body was so resistant towards, um, 
being forced into birth that, I mean, I, I was so sick and I felt like I had gotten hit by a train. I was in labor for oh. four days. Oh my goodness. Four days. And I hemorrhaged post-C-section too. Oh, Courtney. Um, it was insane. I, and after the fact, I look back and I say, well, my body wasn't being supported during that time period because of, you know, my hustle mentality and I, I wasn't addressing my everyday needs. But, you know, you need water, you need good food, you need to move your body. And it just was, my, my body was a secondary thought at that point. It wasn't important to me. What was more important to me was, you know, getting all the things that I I thought you're supposed to have, or you're, you need to have in your life because everybody else has it. And you know, that's what you're supposed to have too. Yeah. What's coming up for me. And, um, I like, forgive me. I hope this isn't a stretch, but you know, you said earlier that you, when you were younger, you, you strive to sort of be perfect. I'm curious when you, um, experienced motherhood for the first time, like did that, did that sort of belief follow you and like aid to the, the, the hustle? Um, I'm just like, what's coming up for me is like when I became a mom, like despite my best efforts of being like, no, I like, I went through infertility. Like I can, I can, I have like a thick skin. I, I found myself sort of like succumbing to this like desire to be like the perfect mom, which meant that I was not putting myself first. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious if, if you experienced something similar. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, those early years of motherhood for me, if there was one word I could use to sum it all up, it, it's self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. self-sacrifice. I mean, it is, it is pounded in our heads from the time that we are little girls that motherhood is going to be difficult, that, you know, we have, it's not supposed to be about us. It's supposed to be about our kids. We are, we are um, not as important or our needs aren't as valid. Um, And especially with me having been raised in a environment where I was taught that my, all of my value and my worth was, rooted in how good of a mother I could be and how good of a wife I could be. Anytime that I felt like I wasn't, like I was falling short of that perfection, I felt like a failure and I beat myself down. And I, there was just so much unnecessary sacrifice. Like I, I didn't see my friends ever. I never did anything on my own. Um, You know, I would just handle everything myself feeling like I couldn't ask for help, feeling like it was um, selfish or like I wasn't strong enough if I, if I needed help. Yeah. Um, and I know that like some people still hold that belief. Like they'll still tell you that, you know, as mothers, we should be able to basically do it all ourselves. And for me personally, that led me to chronic feelings of unhappiness. I just felt like I could never be good enough. I could never do enough. I could never work hard enough. I could never be enough, really. Yeah, I get it. And I actually, I would go on a limb and say, I don't think it's just some people. I think the majority of people still hold that belief because again, I think there are cultural norms that, that, you know, lead us to believe that. Um, mm-hmm. coming up for me is, uh, do, have you read the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle Melton yet? 
I have not. That's next on my list though. Oh my gosh. Well, we'll have to connect when you read it, but there's a, one of the little, so in this book, it's a lot of sort of moments that then, um, you know, mean something to her. And it's, it's, it's really a fascinating read, but one of the, um, quotes is about this, that as, as mothers, we are taught to self-sacrifice and what does that, like, what are we teaching our, Mm -hmm. our children and especially our young daughters, right? Where to become a mom, our lives stop. And, and that's what we're teaching them what motherhood is. And, um, so I think what you're saying is, is exactly what, what, she's sort of encompassing. And I think that's what so many of us um, experienced until we, we had our own sort of reckoning with that. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that you said that the majority of people still kind of hold that perspective. So, you know, in my view, part of the process in switching from one phase to the next um, is through transformation. And, you know, I look to like the butterfly transformation and the stages of that, which is, you know, the larva stage, the caterpillar stage, the chrysalis phase, and then of course your butterfly phase. Um, And it's important to know that 98% of butterfly larvae, 98%, so the vast majority never even leave the egg. They never even begin the process of transformation because they stay in the place that they know. And they, that's, that's all that they'll ever know. And it's a dark place and it's a small place, but you can live there. I mean, technically you, you can stay there. It's just never, it, it's, you can't begin to explore your world and begin that process of transformation and, and switching into the resiliency and eventually the prosiliency state. Um, if you're too scared to even leave the egg, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. I love that. But I think in, in the, the point that you made too about what we're teaching our children, that was the changing moment for me. When I went from resiliency and work hard, push hard, you know, um, constantly, you know, more and more and more over to the prosiliency part, which was I began to see that um, I didn't want my children to think that's all there was. I didn't want my children to think that all you're born to do is to like earn money, work out hard and, you know, look a certain way, own certain things. And then you die because there's so much more to life than that. But that is like, if you really consider what the quote unquote American dream is or what we know it to be, um, it's all about that like rugged individualism of like, work hard and get all the things, which, I mean, there is value to working hard and there is value to, you know, getting the things that you desire. But at the same time, like all of that is unimportant. If at the end of the day, you don't have connection and you don't have community and you don't have real lasting, meaningful relationships. And it keeps us um, all separated and divided from one another if we think that, you know, we have to do everything ourselves. And I mean, reality is it takes a village. It truly does. It truly, truly does. And mm-hmm. as someone who is, let's call it a recovering, um, 
I, I, I was never a perfectionist. I, I, I would say like I'm a recovering, like shoved down of emotions. Um, and um, so for me, what, what's coming up when you're, when you were talking was, yes, it's, it's the community. It's, it's the, the connection. And I, I believe, I truly believe that um, to have true connection, you need to, you need to be authentic, right? You need to, to be able to be a little bit vulnerable um, and have that person you're having a conversation with, you know, hold, hold space for you and, and accept that. Um, and I, I believe that when you have that, then, then there's true empathy, right? And that's the whole point of me having this podcast. Well, I want my, well, that's the whole point of yeah, life exactly. in my opinion. You know, I'm a hospice social worker. Now I work with people who are dying every single day. And I will tell you what, nine times out of 10, it really just boils down to who you love, who you have in your life, who are, imp who's important to you. And if you are, um, somebody who has pursued meaning in life, like you've, you've left something meaningful and, you know, I think what happens is that with the whole theme of Darwinism and survival of the fittest and all of that, it's really based on this like resiliency state. It's based on this patriarchal, this fear-based sort of system. Mm -hmm. And we live in fight and flight and we can't get to that full expression. We can't get to the self-actualization because like if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, you know, at the very, very base of self-actualization is your basic biological and physiological needs. If we are mothers who truly believe that our needs are not as important as our family's needs, we cannot begin to self-actualize or reach our potential because we're not, we're not meeting our own basic biological and physiological needs. Yes. And we are the heart of our homes. So when we transform our lives, we transform our relationships with our family members, with our children, with our spouses. And they in turn then are transformed themselves and they transform their workplaces and they transform their schools and their relationships. So again, chaos theory, these little incremental changes that you can make to switch you know, from a place of resiliency into prosiliency and learning the, the beauty and the value of letting go and acceptance and that sort of yin principle of um, rest and the benefit of connection and um, all of that. As soon as you start to make that shift, all of the systems in your life begin to shift along with you because it's all interconnected. It's all part of the systems theory. I love this. I love this so much. Um, okay, one, one last question for you. Um, so going back to your, your butterfly analogy, what, what mm -hmm. stage are you, are you in currently? So I am currently in the butterfly phase. Which Damn right the you butterfly are. phase, <laughs> um, it, it's the phase of creative expression. Like this is the culmination phase where you finally feel like you're able to express yourself. You know, it's, it's the point where um, you found um, really good adaptive behaviors to meet your needs. Um, I've been able to spread my ideas now, um, just like the, the butterflies fly around and they, they have their little larvae they leave everywhere. It's the same concept. Um, 
if you look at, you know, the Bible, there's that analogy of spreading seeds, right? You just throw mm-hmm. them and, and some of them sprout and some of them don't. And some people probably think I'm insane and that's okay. But all I can do is spread my message. And that's one of hope. I love it. And you are a motherfucking butterfly. Um, <laughs> you are truly. Um, I appreciate that. Where can people continue to follow you on your journey? So um, there's a few different ways that you can follow me. Um, I am pretty active on my Instagram, which is Courtney K Coaching. Um, And then there's also my Facebook page, uh, which is Courtney K Coaching and Consulting. And then um, come August 31st, which is in a couple of days, which I'm assuming this will probably be out before then or after then, I mean, um, you can also go to the avid soul searcher.com and that is my blog. Amazing. Well, I will put all of that in the show notes. Um, Courtney, anything else you want to leave the audience with? Um, you know, I just want people to realize that it's not, my message is about understanding that what happens to us and our experiences in the world very much shape who we are and where we go. And for people who, you know, are struggling or people who, you know, a lot of us want to look at and judge because of where they are in their journey, it's, it's not because they're, you know, worse people or somehow, you know, you're a better person because you're not having that struggle. It's more about where people are in their journey. And, um, it's about connection. So instead of like judging people, we should be trying to help them in discovering their journey and helping propel them through their own journey. And, you know, that judgmental attitude, it really is, it just doesn't get people anywhere. And if we want to change this world, it really changes. Um, the, it first has to start with us and, in our, um, actions and the way we talk, the way we interact with other people. Um, that's really the root of my message. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that is the perfect place to end this conversation. Courtney, you are a kick-ass butterfly. I am honored to, to know you. Um, thank you for this conversation. Well, I am honored to be a part of this podcast and a part of this community. Jesse, I think that um, this is such a safe space that you've created and I'm so thankful for you and you're a damn butterfly too. (laughs) I like it. We're going to start a butterfly, some sort of butterfly community. (laughs) Let's do it. Awesome. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If something in the conversation resonated with you, please, please share it with a friend that you think needs to hear this conversation. Feel free to tag me on social media. Let me know how you're listening, where you're listening, and what resonated. Tag me at This Is My Truth Podcast, or feel free to shoot me a DM. And because we're a new podcast and this shit matters, I would love for you to leave me a rating and review. Tell me how you truly feel. This entire podcast is about vulnerability and authenticity. So let me know how you really feel and give me some feedback. I really appreciate it.